1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with citizen physician Atul Gawande. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hi, Atul. Hi. Hi, it's Krista Tippett.
0: Atul Gawande. Atul, how yeah. are you?
1: <laughs> I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. I'm so happy.
0: Oh, I'm glad to be here. This is, this is going to be fun. Yeah. Oh, I have to tone off my phone. Let me do that. Yes, do that. Get that off.
1: Chris, do you would let's um let's do something mundane like what you had for breakfast to get some levels. Oh, I don't get breakfast. You don't <laughs> get breakfast. Lunch. lunch, lunch. I did get lunch. <laughs> okay, what did Caesar you have for lunch? I got a Caesar salad. I had
0: a Caesar salad. Uh huh. How about that? Do you eat a proper? Do you eat a proper breakfast? Um, like I like I tell my patients.
1: I I <laughs> have started eating just like one egg a lot of mornings and maybe putting oh, that's a little good. vegetable that's a good in it. Wow. Yeah.
0: This is good. This is good. This is what I should be doing. <laughs>
1: I know. I'm I wake not gonna, up too early
0: I'm, to feel like I can eat at that hour.
1: I know, but I won't tell anyone that you don't eat breakfast because it might have <laughs> deleterious ripple effects.
0: That's right. No, <laughs> no one should eat the way I eat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, I can I can turn it down.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, yes. Um, but today, what I had for breakfast actually was some. I was in Australia this summer, and i I love their. I love how fresh the food was. And I found an Australian chef who lives here who makes muesli. Doesn't have oh. much sugar in it, and um, so I had muesli and yogurt and a little hemp seed. And you can seed. pronounce
0: it. And you pronounce it muesli.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>.
0: <laughs> I say. I thought it was yeah, muesli.
1: They, they don't. They don't call it granola. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, great. Then I think we can just dive in. And do you have any questions for me before we start?
0: Yes. Um, uh, how long? How, how long do um, do you think? How long do you tape? Do well, you edit? We, like, what what do you what do you do?
1: We do between sixty and ninety minutes. Um, I, you know, we probably about seventy five. Um, okay. And then we edit it for broadcast. But we also do. Put the unedited version out, and there's a surprising number of people who love listening to a great big messy conversation, linear, a nonlinear okay. conversation.
0: And then, um, uh, turf uh, is this just like where, where should I restrict myself, or is it? Are we are we move, Are we mainly to talking about being mortal? Um, or are we are we thinking we're going in a lot of different directions?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I kind of just want you to put yourself into my hands and let us let me. Um, yeah.
0: So you'll guide me. I okay. will guide you.
1: Yeah. And it is it is really around larger things theme the you know the theme of mortality. Um, um, but I just I want to go deep into that and ask you some questions I haven't seen other people asking you but I think things you talk about you think about and write about all the time and a little bit of the checklist as well I mean I mean I've been reading you for years and in the New Yorker and I like to kind of do m- be more sweeping about like how you think as opposed to just what the books are about awesome yeah Kay.
0: that's awesome all that's right. great yes yeah. uh, the, the, uh, the full tippet <laughs> <That's right. laughs> the full tippet
1: <laughs> um so, so perhaps you know that I always I, st- I always start every conversation um, with an inquiry about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood. However, you think about that. However, you would yeah. de- define that. Okay.
0: Uh, start in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my parents are Hindu. I grew up in rural Ohio. It's hard to grow up in my little town of Athens, Ohio. It's a college town in the Appalachian foothills um, near the West Virginia border mm. and, uh, and it's hard to grow up a Hindu in rural Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's such a cultural religion. It's deeply embedded. Even the way my mother who comes from North India in a, in a big city and her family um, managed temples mm. to where my father came from in the middle of India. Uh, in a very small village, and their own traditions of Hinduism are very different from one another, which gods they uh, most revered, and the mm. prayers that they told. And then I didn't grow up with the language. So it was this. Um, so you know, I grew up a Hindu, but I'm a sort of apostate Hindu of a religion that doesn't even know the idea of it being an apostate. It's such a wide open <laughs> ecumenical, welcoming, Religion, yeah, and uh, um, and so, you know, I still call myself a Hindu, but I'm not I've never really been practicing though my parents raised me praying every weekend, and mm. they prayed every day um and uh, and being sort of steeped in it,
1: you know, I've actually found it's very hard to speak. I mean, I think this is true in general of of religion, but it's hard to speak about it, but I think that that's true, especially with Hinduism, because it is so much about practice, and it is so wide open, right? It's not ideas, right? Yeah. Do you know what I mean?
0: It's a way of, um, it's so embedded in the culture and, you know, it, it, the line between how do you treat your mom and your dad, and uh, what are your, uh, you know, how are you supposed to grow up, uh, and your ways of um, praying are... Uh, That's they, seamless. These yeah. not easily separated. For example, um, you—I you, grew up that you never put your foot on a book um, because a book is spiritual and it's wisdom and it's meaningful. Mm. And so, if I ever put a foot on a book, I had to apologize to the book, put my hand on, and apologize. And I grew up doing that. <laughs> and I cannot to this day put a fo- foot on a book. It—it—it is—it—it is. Uh, it, it is uh, it's just sacrilegious. It just you know it is dishonoring not only the book but everything that matters behind it. And it's inseparable, right? It's a way of living yeah. and a yeah. way of 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 um, praying, I suppose
1: it's it's a whole different way of putting the word sacred and text together <laughs> <too>. <laughs>
0: Yes, Yes,
1: I love that. Um, okay. And you know i I have read you for years, but i I did not. Somehow, I never picked up. I was fascinated to learn that that you actually wound your way into being a surgeon through politics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I wonder: do you think of those, you know, the doctor in you and the and the the part of you that was drawn to politics and campaigns and policy and process? Do you, are those two different sides of you, or do you have a sense that these things are intertwined?
0: I feel like they're they are not um, separate. They they feel very Intertwined, um, and I'm still getting my feel for how I how I think about it that way. One way was um, I you know I grew up in a family of doctors, and there's a certain way of being part of the community that I grew up with. My my parents in a rural town in Ohio um, were very much part of the civic life. They were members of the Rotary Club. My father became the president of the Rotary Club, and then my mom, as soon as the ban on women being uh, presidents of the president of the rotary clubs uh, as soon as that lifted she challenged locally and became the president of the, of the local rotary club mm. and that sense that you are as a clinician a physician part of the community yeah. um, that you have that that you're contributing um, has always kind of been there i mean what i love about medicine is the idea that it has this core thousands-year-old commitment to the idea that all people have equal worth
1: and yeah, deserve right. equal
0: dignity and that we're enacting that and trying to serve that every day but that has that has larger connotations than just whether you are um, getting the, getting the same surgery that you know
1: hmm.
0: some muckety muck is getting
1: and and I think that that actually also gets at the fact that you are, a writer, as much as you are a physician, and that in your writing, um, the, the, the policy—you know—that the, the side of you that in politics and now from the vantage point of medicine asks these questions about policy and structures and values and how we honor those—that um, gets picked up in, in your writing and kind of joins these things.
0: Yeah, I had no idea that that would be. The way that it came together, they, the um, the policy interest and politics interest came from um, was was about how do we make our how do we make this world better in some way? Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we make very concrete things better? And there's a sense of also that that comes out of the science work I do that that it's inherently empirical. You you have to kind of everything has to be a kind of experiment. You got to try things based on your best guess of how the world works. And then you got to collect data and really understand, like, did it work? Did it not work? And whether it's a biological system or an operation I'm doing where we're going to try out a new technology and see if it really makes a difference, or it's the outside world system that's where they connect but the part that then is missing is the fact that every time you get into the reality of it's real people yeah. <laughs> with different goals and uh, different abilities whether it's the whether it's the whether it's me the surgeon and the fact that I'm imperfect and I've got things I'm not good at and things I'm good at and uh, and how we're nonetheless I'm asking you to trust me and to rely on me, and, I, and, we, and the minute I connect with you as a patient, um, we're in a different world, and you're 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 in a wholly different person, and and it's more complicated than just what the scientific studies indicated, and um, and and there's complex goals and desires you have, and 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 you don't always feel good about my imperfections, and yeah. um, and so all of that suddenly enters into a space that starts to be about story, and. Uh, and are working our way through the messiness of um, the reality of how science and systems and the world meet human beings, and and I feel like we're in this um, important, unusual space where we've accumulated enormous amounts of knowledge. Uh, we're no longer in a world of pure ignorance like we were yeah. for millennia, and we're trying to figure out how to how to grapple with all this information and knowledge and make sense of it together
1: I I agree I we and I think that we we're learning so much we're like in the midst of learning it so I don't even think we can take in the kind of seismic shift that's underway and and the implications of how we'll be able to you know, kind of take our agency more seriously I mean and I mean you you know, this this whole matter of our mortality. Um, I mean, you really, you, you, you know, we've talked about politics and medicine and also there's this philosophical, I mean, you are really also, also looking at very practical issues through and asking um, philosophical questions. I mean, looking at the body and asking questions of consciousness. And, you know, it's just so, I, I was looking at the... You know, just thinking about the title, like becoming mortal,
0: Um or being mortal, being being yeah. being mortal.
1: Yeah, sorry, <laughs> being yeah. mortal. Um, and the fact that that is a that is a that is a fact, like that being alive is a fatal condition. <laughs> like that we all, all <laughs> are that 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 we all do have a you know a diagnosis that we will die, um, and that you just you experience again and again and write about how. And yet we are almost, the people are almost always surprised. I mean, it's just so fascinating about us. And do you think, is it that we don't let it into our consciousness, that we haven't gotten to the point where we can, or that we resist that?
0: I mean, I I dove into that topic um, because I was as confused about it as you are. Um, That, uh, first of all, I didn't know what it meant to be a good doctor for mortal beings. The mm. question of what does it mean to be competent with people who are going to have problems you cannot fix?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, what does it mean to go beyond competence and actually be really great at problems that people are going to die from? And, and also, how do you become competent and great at it if... Um, you don't know whether the problem you're dealing with, with certainty, is one they're going to die from or not. And that, um, that you know, that's why, I, at the end of the day, that's why, that's why I write, because those kinds of questions, I can't answer them straightforwardly sitting in my armchair or just doing my uh, surgical thing. I get to go out when I, say, "Hey, I'm going to see you as a writer today." I, I get to go yeah. out and ask people tons of questions." And I think what came out of that for me was a general sense that, um, that peering in at why part of it was I slowly figured out with just getting the question wrong. Mm. I thought of it as I, the situations to serve me the most were ones where someone would come in, they'd have a condition that I knew was incurable. A terminal cancer, but we don't know—is it going to be a year? Is it going to be three years? Is it going to be five years? Um, And therefore, we start moving
1: right all the time. Now,
0: that's (laughs) right. We have new technologies, and and so, um, and so we're going to start trying stuff. And then, uh, and then, I have so often been there when we said, "Let's try that one more thing." And we're, and you know, they're in a bad situation. We say, "Well, should we try surgery?" Well, yes. I mean, we we have to give it a try. And then they never wake up again. Mm. And then you see the suffering that has come from that because mm. we never once talked about the fact that their life might be mortal, is mortal. <laughs> mm. And and I didn't even know how to begin to have that conversation. And they didn't, they never woke up. They spent the next couple of weeks in the ICU and then we unplugged the machine. They didn't get to say goodbye. They didn't get to say, I love you. Mm. They didn't get to say, I'm sorry. Um, they, and the family, you know, the, the, the data is that, like the families, I see that they're tortured, but then you see also like when people have those kinds of endings, six months later, they're more families are more likely to have PTSD hmm. uh, symptoms and depression. And, um, and there was partly wanting to understand how do I do better in that situation? What does it mean to be more confident and competent in those situations? But it also gradually came to... You know, what I slowly realized is that it wasn't about having a good death. I interviewed more than 200 patients about their yeah. experiences with terminal illnesses and that, in, in that uh, world. And then scores of experts of various kinds, palliative care doctors, hospice doc- doctors, and nurses, and uh, home health aides, and so on. And the, what I realized is we were not really talking about death. We were talking about, uh, or dying. We were really talking about how do you live a good life all the way to the very end. Uh, with whatever comes, yeah. So and that's, and, what, that's what that's where you begin to unpack.
1: And there, that's where you say the that's such a different question than how do I fix this, how do I cure this? And it, I mean, I've, I've spoken to so many people across the years who were who were there at the advent of hospice, the hospice movement, or have been involved in that. And and I mean, you even write about that. It, even when you were becoming a doctor, when you were going through your medical training. It it was about it was about how do I fix this, and then death was a failure, right? And, and then at the point at which something was somebody was definitely going to die, medicine stopped. Is that too? Is that yeah?
0: That's that's exactly right. I mean, you know that um, you know, <laughs> are we going to you know go raging uh, at at the extinguishing of the light? That um, I thought the whole question was how do I. How do do you know the, the conversation? I felt like I was having was, do we fight or do we give up?
1: Right, and, right,
0: and yeah. uh, and the reality was that it was, and that was where you, you said something. You said, you know, that's such a different question. That 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 what it took me a long time to figure out was just mm-hmm. the wrong question. It's not do we fight or we give up. It's what are you? What are we fighting for?
1: Right.
0: People have priorities besides just surviving, no matter what. You you have reasons you want to be alive. What are those reasons? Because whatever you're living for along the way, we got to make sure we don't sacrifice it. And in fact, can we along the way, whatever's happening, can we enable it? You know, um, it's the and 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 that's that sense that a conversation about the end of life is: Do you want chest compressions? Do you want a ventilator? Do you want to be shocked? Like, that's not the conversation. The conversation no no one has as their goal that I get shocked before I die. Yeah. They, they, the conversation is, what are you want as you face what you're facing, as you go through what you go through, what are you willing to sacrifice? and what are you not willing to sacrifice along the way for the sake of more time? What's the minimum quality of life you're really going for here that you would find acceptable? And then can I make sure? To the extent of my abilities, the extent of abilities we have today in medicine, can we protect that for you? And um, and the answer is often yes. And often the answers, sometimes the answers are technological, but but they're often not. It's it's often just you know a matter of being humane. Someone you know said to me, well. I want to take my children to Disney World, my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to make sure I'm able to do is take my grandchildren to Disney World. And she was telling that to me in the hospital, you know, emaciated uh, on her last days. She would die 48 hours later. Hmm. And um, we had missed that. We we Had failed. We had never asked her to know that might might have mattered to her, because we could have made that possible for her a month before.
1: If those questions had been asked earlier, that's right. Mm -hmm.
0: And so it wasn't about do we fight or not. It's that we didn't. We we missed the fight. (laughs) The fight (laughs) was the fight was to make sure, um, among other things, that she got to have her got to go take her grandchildren to Disney.
1: I mean, you know, here's, you know, there, when you're writing, you're, you're often, I feel like there are moments when you really are redefining <clears throat> the purpose of medicine as you learned it. And it says, well, and a very modern definition. But, you know, you said we've been wrong about what our job is in medicine. We think our job is to ensure health and survival. But really, it is larger than that. Is it is to enable well-being. And well-being is about the reasons one wishes to be alive. And it's not just about prolonging life. Um.
0: The, the um, I ended up devoting a chapter to a psychologist from Stanford that it, it never occurred to me would be with the, where the direction of the book would go. But her name is Laura Carsonson. And mm. she um, is the psychologist who's been following people across the course of their lives. She has a cohort of some 300 people from ages 18 to 94 when they, when they started in her study. And she'd follow them all the way to the end of their life. And what was interesting to me was that as they got older... They became less healthy, no surprise, <laughs> and they had some loss of function along the way, but they also had increasing sense of fulfillment in their life yeah. despite all of that um, that you in some other studies that that uh, after age sixty five people were more likely to have love in their life they were less likely to have anxiety and depression yeah they were that they were um, uh, that they you know, we're focused less on acquisition and having all the material stuff.
1: This is another one of these great secrets that growing old is actually a wonderful thing and we're all about fighting aging.
0: (laughs) Right. And 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 where it blew up my whole sense of what I was doing as a doctor is I thought my priority (laughs) was uh, your health and your independence. And that and then that means we're always that I was always lost like what is my what is my goal mm. for people when they're not healthy anymore or they don't get to be independent and and then what she opened up for me was the recognition that well-being was really about getting to you know, what made those people happy and when they lost that happiness is when they no longer were, were having some control over their own story, that they were not getting to be the shapers of their own story. And, and that's what you see in people who are in hospitals or in many nursing homes, not all, uh, where, the, that, the, where, they're, where they're, our goal is safety, survival and health. And hey, if you want to opt out of that, if you don't want the antibiotics, or you don't want whatever, well, then that's your choice. But but it was missing the boat. The goal isn't safety uh, uh, and survival. The goal is, um, as you as you'd read from that part, the goal is what you're doing that for. What what is important to you? What are your priorities? And make sure we enable that. And that's why you can be. Um, you can you can gradually lose some functions and become have some health issues along the way, and yet have great satisfactions in
1: life. Yeah, well being, and and um, it's very concrete too. I mean, enabling well being is a lar- is you know is a very lofty uh, idea. And, and then you talk about this woman who would have liked to have taken her grandkids to Disneyland, which is obviously a big undertaking. But it's so much so many of the stories you talk about are just, like, it's it's about what, so you have these five questions that to ask towards the end of life. Um, and, and, um, and some of them are about, you know, your understanding of your illness, your fears or worries for the future, your goals and priorities, what outcomes are acceptable. But the fifth one, which seems to come through again and again, is what does a good day look like? You know, and I think about Annie Dillard mm-hmm. saying how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And you tell so many stories about how just, allowing those days to be to have the simple things that give people a sense of well-being that that is everything
0: it's yes and what i also figured out was that boy it's too almost too late if you're only asking that question towards the end of life right. because that that you realize should have been we should have been asking much earlier um Especially at any, you know, this is the crucial question at any moment that people need help. And on average, we will come to the end of life. We actually spend less time in dependency now than we used to. But it's still, we spend eight years on average in um, needing the help of others uh, over time. And when you start needing help, uh, and whether it's a home health aid or having to be in a nursing home, um, the... Or just having to see a clinician and put your health self in the, in their hands, um, asking those questions like what what does a good day look like? What are your priorities besides just you know surviving the next day? Yeah. And um, and answering those questions, I've found it's become my favorite like dinner party question too because mm. um, yeah. you know like what is what is the quality of life that you would look live for if if you couldn't do everything you wanted. And, you know, one person would say, uh, well, it's being with family. My father said, uh, for example, it's being at the family dinner table with family and friends and being able to enjoy some food and conversation and a connection that way. Mm. And then, you know, I wrote about the other person who, who said, well, it's, if i can eat chocolate ice cream and football and television that's good enough for me <laughs> right and, and then i met a health minister and i you know i'm like so he had he, we were in his office and he had all these beautiful pictures of his family in the room and i and i said so you know so what is the minimum quality of life what's what is the good day for you is it you know is it being with your family and he, and he said well no <laughs> it's complicated yeah he said you know honestly if I can just have a good book yeah. and some quiet, I I could I could I would give up a lot to still be able to have that. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and you know, it tells you so much about people and you know that, Well it
1: does, but it also points thing. out I mean, that's so low tech, right? I mean the, the, yeah. <laughs> the medical yeah. options are so complicated and expensive and sophisticated. These are not these are not unreachable goals even for somebody who might be quite ill.
0: Have a good book. Absolutely, and and uh, and and sometimes it does take that medical capability. Yeah. I wrote about um, Peggy Batchelder, who was my daughter's um, yes. when she was thirteen, her piano teacher, yeah. who had a metastatic cancer and was laid up in the hospital for weeks on end, uh, deteriorating with um a tumor that had spread through her liver and was in her pelvis and made it so that she couldn't get out of bed and she was incontinent and she was and, and none of the treatments were working and her blood counts were dropping and she had fevers every day and you know neither she nor I had any imagination that there might be a life a life worth living for at that point you know she just was miserable and angry and ultimately went home on hospice And then the hospice nurse had that conversation. What does a good day look like? And Mm -hmm. then let's just let's have a goal—one good day. And then they worked on that. And at first was, um, okay, we're going to get you a bedside, we're going to get you in a bed on the first floor so you don't climb the stairs. We're going to get a bedside commode so you know you can get back to a toilet again. We're going to arrange that you can dress get for getting dressed and bathed. And after two or three days of that, she lifted her sights. And then she wanted to teach piano again,
1: <laughs> right.
0: uh, and and the idea that that was possible was, it was you know like it, it, it was extraordinary. My daughter she called our home and said, you know, would you be willing to let Hunter uh, have piano lessons again? And and uh, and so for four weeks, my daughter had the most extraordinary piano lessons. Mm-hmm. And then there was a recital, and at that recital. You know, they played Brahms and Chopin and Beethoven, and Mm. and then and then Peggy took each child to the side and gave them a book. uh, Well, uh, gave each of them a personal gift. It was for my daughter a book of music, and then told them each one by one, "You're special," and it it reshaped my daughter's life, and that was the legacy. Peggy wanted to leave. My my daughter just entered two weeks ago, graduated from high school.
1: <laughs> and, Congratulations! And
0: and is um, and entered Berkeley School of Music because oh. of Peggy. They, they they were together, you know, only a couple years.
1: Yeah.
0: But it made that impact, and that was that idea that that, that was beyond us. You know, uh, that was beyond. Uh, well, so I was saying about medicine. Well, to teach that lesson. Her nurse had to arrange that uh, to figure out how to dose the the, the morphine, so that she wouldn't be um, in pain when she needed to teach the lesson, mm-hmm. but wouldn't be so groggy that she would be slurring her speech and freaking out the kids, <laughs> right. and uh, and you know, but could lift her up to arrive at that moment and then recover. And get to the next oh, one. that's beautiful. And that took a nor- and it took real medical expertise too.
1: Yeah, that collaboration. Um, yeah. You know, and and i I know I know you've thought about this too, but I mean, you one of the things I, I want to spend a little bit of time on because you you also are very clear that in, in many ways what we're facing. I mean, I don't know that I think mortality and the fact of mortality has been this constant theme of philosophy and religion and even how we deal with money like forever but but the mm-hmm. problem of um of death is just diff- we there's a we have a young modern problem with death but but you but but it's also it also it had and it has many layers and one of them you talked about growing growing up in Ohio you said the experience of of a modern old age was entirely outside my, my perception because of um, changes in family and society and mobility were so segregated. We, we don't have that experience. So, I mean, I just think about your daughter, also the experience that she had with her teacher and of someone dying, living while dying. Yes, that I think that too, is amazing.
0: I, I think we've gone through a, a, a really a generational change in the 80s and 90s um, when I was growing up the uh, the world we were in was one where the well let me put this way 1950 um, the majority of Americans it was it was over 90 percent died in their homes Mm -hmm. and it shifted to uh, the majority uh, 80 percent actually in by 1990 died in institutions so when I grew up you know on my street people would get old and they just disappear. I, I remember a woman you know she yeah. you disappear in a nursing home you'd disappear in the hospital and that was that and and I never saw that process whereas now today America you know we sort of we we give the u.s a hard time for being death- denying but in fact we're kind of ahead of the rest of the world in the sense that just in the last half decade or so we went from less than 20 percent being at home on hospice when they die to Close to 50% being in hospice, either in hospice facility or in, or at, or at home with family and others around, you know, that kind of way of coming to that end.
1: Just so really kind of in the last 20, 30 years?
0: Less than that. It's yeah. like less than a decade the shift has happened. That's amazing. It yeah. is. It's, and, and, and the result is my kids growing up who, you know, um, yes. Hunter is our last one to leave the home. So they just in the last five years, all of them when they were teenagers – were 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 around when somebody died, and were in and out of their house as they were going through it. You know, my yeah. daughter's best friend's mom died of an esophageal cancer, uh, and you know, my daughter was there through that year and a half of going through that, and then, and then you know, uh, be, having hospice, and then her father calling Hattie and asking her to bring the friend back home because mom had passed away and Hattie was there and with them. And, you know, that sense of it being normal and not a mystery yeah. and, uh, and, and seeing... And having a
1: quality to it, right? Seeing that that, that is actually a, a time of life that can have an amazing quality to it.
0: I was going to ask what you meant by the quality and and, uh, um, and what do you mean by... Well, it, I mean a, use the a word quality, quality of what, life.
1: I mean that there's meaning yeah. and dignity not just dignity but real substance right it's not just somebody is in bed dying that that they're living that and doing things right. that matter to them
0: and it's and it's finding your way through that because there's plenty that also was not um quality right yeah um that that she would arrive and peggy had to w- work her way through some pain and work her way through mm-hmm. some indignity and but then also find something really beautiful about mm-hmm. that, or, you know, in another case, sometimes see uh, the struggle for that, and and have real conversations we'd have at home about, you know, why isn't it, why you know, why is it so hard and painful, and um, and what are you know what um, you know reaching that place where you, you say. You could see people in denial about the situation and not being able to talk about it. They'd see families where they wouldn't be able to talk about anything except what's the next treatment we can try in, instead of saying, all right, what is the next treatment we try? But also what's possible today? What, what can we do today that also makes sure we're not missing the chance to enjoy the time we have? Yeah. And those aren't opposed to each other. And and they – they you know, you, we start to see these conversations unfolding in multiple generations. And I think that's crucial. That is and, – and, and there's strong evidence behind what a difference it is for um, the experience that people have towards the end and even what their survival rate is when you have these conversations versus when you don't.
1: hmm And this is also – I mean I think a lot about how, you know – some of the ways we, we, we grow more wise and sophisticated in our thinking are about innovation and some of them are about rediscovering something we forgot. So, you know, there's, there's a way in which kind of modern medicine is meeting, you know, a very old experience. Like you talk about your paternal grandfather in India. I mean, there is also this way before people got sent away to nursing homes, um, People died surrounded by family and and at home.
0: Yeah, that complexity. I mean, you know, I describe my grandfather's death. Um, he got to live to one hundred and eight years in <laughs> right. in that village in Maharashtra, that um, with family all around. And you know, he spent the last twenty years of his life with infirmities that would have put him in a nursing home in the United States, but yeah. there he was with family. He was at the head of the dinner table people would come to him to bless their marriages to to get advice on business decisions to um uh he, he was respected as the elder and could have that all the way to the very end but it came at a cost that that was possible because the younger generation especially the women in the younger generation were more or less enslaved to his needs right. his physical right. needs right. Yeah. his his you know that and and <laughs> what india is going through right now is what we went through in the 19th century mm-hmm. which is the shift from an agricultural economy was that young people got freedom my cousins uh they they are leaving in droves because they have opportunity to go to the city to do the work they want to marry whom they want <laughs> who's- yeah. Scandal, scandal, yeah. believe yeah. me. Oh my God. <laughs> and the um uh, and to start to be who they want. And then you have the breakdown of the extended family. It it's um we, we treat it as like and my father would say, you know, we would never treat the elderly in India the way we treat people in the United States because it's the Asian way of having the extended family. But I'm watching and I wrote about the breakdown in the extended family in India as they Advance economically and industrialize, because it involves people moving to cities, following their dreams. Yeah, and um, and the, you get this complicated picture. The 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 hump, the the thing that we broke through to eventually was that you uh, live long enough to actually accumulate pensions, and you have, you know, you have a certain level of economy that can have the next thing and. That we switched from the elderly being the poorest to actually accumulating enough to be our wealthiest generation, yeah. and um, and not mean that elder, being elderly consigns yourself to poverty. Right now in India, though, being elderly consigns you to poverty, and and there's that there's that they haven't made they haven't the economy is not at that point yet where pensions and the equivalent of social security have. Um, have taken hold yet
1: yeah um it's interesting that it's um i i hope i wonder if as we like move forward as a globalized world if then we just keep teaching each other back and forth or you know <laughs> um
0: I think we are. I mean, one of the interesting things about universal health coverage is, um, like, when the U.S. adopted universal health coverage, uh, not universal, we aren't there yet. Boy, are we not there yet. No, we're not there. Um, But when we adopted Medicaid and Medicare for the elderly and for the poor in 1965, we were past $15,000 per capita GDP um, uh, in earnings as an economy. Uh, Korea in 1980 was below $10,000. India just passed a um, – uh, has enacted for the last few years for below the poverty line, the equivalent of their Medicaid program, at $1,500 GDP per capita. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we enacted self-security, uh, when Germany enacted uh, the Bismarck's pension system, <laughs> they it's those were – you know, the economies weren't huge then, and I think it's possible to see that come to – these transitioning economies as well, and those are all really important. The place we've come is eighteen—you know—just a century ago, you only lived in, on average to your mid-forties.
1: Yeah, in a yeah. place like
0: the U.S., we now live past eighty, and we are making it possible to have meaningful lives across that whole lifespan. Um, and and it's th- and it's thinking about it and acknowledging about it, acknowledging it, and then and then recognizing that what a good day looks like at age ten, age thirty, and age seventy necessarily look like very different things
1: yeah but that there are very good days at age 70 (laughs) and possibly even at 108 i mean the other thing you the the other um, well there's 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 aging and dying of a having a long life and then there's another thing you write a lot about is this uh you know this modern tragedy of kind of um lives that are extended kind of brutally um, with all the best intentions and all the best aspirations um, and all of our best tools. Um, I thought it was interesting that you, you note that when you start, when you, when you have this process of asking patients about their priorities, you discover what they're living for, that often that very same process ends up Identifying the limits to the kind of care that people want, that that emerges in a humane and organic and very thoughtful way, in a way that it doesn't when medicine is just in this battle mode of well, how do you know what's the next fight?
0: Yeah, this is really crucial because what we often think is that putting your quality of life as a as a consideration. Means you're sacrificing quantity of life because I'm you know, thinking twice about whether to have that chemotherapy or undergo that operation. And the evidence is that it's not the case. There are many kinds of studies. The most powerful one for me was a study that Jennifer Temmel, a Massachusetts General Hospital physician, did, uh, led, um, which f- took care of uh, stage four lung cancer patients. They lived only on average 11 months. It's a terminal condition. No, ever, no one uh, lived past about three years. And um, what she did was, half of the groups were randomized to get usual oncology care, and the other half were randomized to get the usual oncology care plus a palliative care clinician, physician to see them early in the course of their illness. Now, usually, as a cancer surgeon, I would say, to someone who'd say, I used to say, if that when they said. Um, I would. I want to see a palliative care clinician, I'd say, no, 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 we don't have – it's not time for that yet. We still have options. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: uh, and, and it was only there for the end, you know. And so the, it was kind of a radical idea, see them from the very beginning. And what the group who saw the palliative care clinicians from the very beginning did end up stopping their chemotherapy, 50 percent – they were 50 percent less likely to be on chemotherapy in their last three months of life. Mm. They were 90 percent less likely to be on chemotherapy in their last – two weeks of life. They were less likely to get surgery towards the end. They had one-third lower costs. They started hospice sooner. They spent more time out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. They were less likely to die in the hospital or die in the ICU. And the kicker was that they not only had overall less suffering, uh, they um, lived 25% longer.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: (laughs) And that's the, wow. that's
1: that's the thing we're missing out it's on. It's fascinating.
0: It's like if it were a, if it were a cancer drug, <laughs> if it were a pill, um, it would be you know this blockbuster company, and we'd all want stock in it. You know, the whole thing. <laughs> but it's just, and, and then when I trace down, like, what are you guys doing, and how can I do it next week, um, as you know, without having to be you you guys, um, the answer was. They were just having these conversations. Identify <laughs> that priorities. It's
1: just one person talking to another, one human it's being one and another human, human being.
0: And <laughs> acting, activating mm-hmm. the think. you know, my good day is X. Mm-hmm. If I start feeling like my chemotherapy or my surgery is going to take that away from me um, and that's not worth it to me, stop. Mm-hmm. And then they stop and they feel better. And they do better for longer because the other thing it hooks up with is that we as clinicians – are um, excessively optimistic about the power of what we're going to be able to do for you.
1: We're well, like and
0: five times more likely to predict. And physicians
1: the- are authority figures, right? I mean, like physicians are some of the people in in the world who we just, you know, hand over and think, you know, believe that they know. And, you know, you've said that... Um, we can we imagine that we can wait until the doctors tell us that there's nothing more they can do. But rarely is there nothing more that doctors can do. I mean, the the scenario that you're describing where where there's this conversation and this participation, it's like it gives it gives the patient or the person their agency back.
0: This was what um, has been most transformative in my practice uh, that I did not understand. So, what a clinician does what what we do with our authority has been a very tense issue o- over time um, and by the 1990s you know I, when I was in medical school, um, we had rejected paternalism rightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the doctor knows best I'm just going to tell you what to do we had replaced it with a belief in the patient's autonomy and and a way of activating that. And the way of activating that was to give you options, to tell you, here is your condition, here are the options, option A, option B, option C, here are the pros, the cons, the risks, the benefits, now what do you want to do? And then what I found in the real world, like that was the way I was taught to exercise my authority, was to give people knowledge and then ask what they want to do with it. and then, but what I found in the real world was that patients would ask back, "Well, what would you do?" What would, yeah, right. <laughs> right. And because you and still know, know better,
1: to, you still know better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so what we're taught to say, so that you don't take away their agency, mm-hmm. was, um, "No, no, no. <laughs> this is not for me to decide. This is for you to decide. Only you know you. I don't yeah. know you, and and you have to make the call here around what's more important to you." And people felt completely abandoned and, and it never felt good and what the palliative care clinicians when I watch them or geriatricians would do yeah. is they would go one step farther they would ask not just not just tell you what your options are they would listen to ask what are your goals yeah. what what are your priorities? what really matters to you oh you want to be at home okay. you don't want to you you worry you, for you your brain is really important and you want to be as clear cognitively as possible okay. So now here are option A option B option C this is the one that that I recommend based on my experiences giving you your best chance of meeting your various goals mm-hmm. and and I and and it's a it's a new it, the, and that idea is that you are a genuine counselor that you have mm-hmm. the and the only way you can offer wisdom is by connecting what you know and have observed about what what happens with various things to the goals that this individual person has and the art of it is can i extract can i listen well enough can i extract from this conversation enough to tell me what you really care about to give you some guidance along the way here mm-hmm. and that you know is hard i learned from the palliative care folks like one person said to me the family conversation is my procedure it it it, it takes as many of those family conversations learned with deliberate practice to be great at it as it takes for you to learn to do your cancer operations, and so think of it that way.
1: Mm. You know, as I was reading your the way you redefine, you know, when you say about medicine, we think our job is to ensure health and survival, but really it is to enable well being. I was thinking about I was I was very honored um, this year to be invited to give the a commencement address at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Mm. And I was so impressed with the pledge that the students of the class of 2017 had written when they started. And then I think they also give the students the opportunity to rewrite that at the end. But they actually kept the one they had. I I, I wanted to read a little bit of it to you because I I wondered also if you think there's a generational shift. I was really stunned. So I'll just read it. So in the presence of our families, colleagues, and communities... We take this oath in recognition of the honor and privilege of becoming a physician. We arrive at the threshold of our chosen profession, pledging to preserve our humility, integrity, and all the values which brought us to the practice of medicine. We will engage in honest self-reflection, striving for excellence, but acknowledging our limitations and caring for ourselves as we care for others. We will collaborate with our colleagues, patients, and communities to improve the practice of medicine. We will discover, innovate, learn, and teach as, res- as responsible stewards of medical knowledge. And then they say, we will seek to heal the whole person rather than merely treat disease, committing to a partnership with our patients that empowers them and demonstrates empathy and respect. We will su- cure sometimes, treat often, and comfort always. That's great. Isn't that good?
0: That last part in particular.
1: Isn't that amazing? And I have to say, you know, it was the day of, oh, there was all this terrible, this drama going on in Congress about the health care, you know, health care (laughs) bill and insurance. And it was so wonderful to be with them and see them and read this pledge they've taken that they wrote that's so very different from what I think a doctor of my generation would have written. And to see, well, this is the future of medicine, right? This is it. This care
0: I think the the place you, we are coming to that um, is is when you take that pledge seriously and then really think about what the goals people have, um, that it's it, it becomes a really interesting dialogue because um, people often are not sure about their goals or they are uh, they have contradictory goals. Mm, for example, okay. um, you know, I for example uh, will badger my patients about quitting smoking and wearing a seatbelt. But their actions are telling me they want to not wear the seatbelt or want to keep smoking. They're telling me what their priorities are, right? But there's first-order priorities. I want to eat what's in the refrigerator. And there's higher-order priorities. I really want to put a lock on the refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) And, and um, And being able to recognize when should we be thinking about the bigger, longer term priorities? And when do we pick, think about the everyday priorities and joys and navigate between these pathways? And then there's some public health priorities, like, I want to, I want to be part of making sure, you know, people are, that that we're protecting people um, uh, against diseases that are vaccine treatable. And, uh, and so this complicated discussion about what are your goals? What are, what and what are um, and what are the ones we're going to arrive at and agree on are important, and uh, and sometimes I'm, if I'm an effective counselor, I might argue with you about your goals. Right, right, right. And that's and that and that role as a clinician of all kinds, not just doctors, but it's nurses, psychologists, uh, teachers, <laughs> um, ministers. That that is we come back to writing again, right? That that is the the deeper dialogue
1: yeah and but that's the kind of arguing we do with people we love, right that's 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 also a form of care that's the spirit That is when
0: and, it is health care
1: <laughs> right, right well, there you go <laughs> yeah. um, I did you know Sherwin Newland Shep Newland did you know him personally?
0: I did yeah, I did. I got to so. Shep Newland, um, surgeon at Yale, yeah. uh, read his book *How We Die*, which one I think it was 1980 or 82 or something, National Book Award winner, and it just blew the top off my head. Mm-hmm. Um, a book that you know opened the door on. I, I think uh, that that was the book that started me thinking hard about mm-hmm. dying and what what it means. I read it later. I was in medical school in the 90s, and I had no idea I would get to meet him. Um, and know him then, but when I uh, then um, started writing for The New Yorker and then um, wrote my first book, Complications, uh, during my surgical residency, he wrote the review in the oh. um, New, York, New York Review of Books and then oh. reached out to me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, and it was this great, very special relationship. We met only once, actually, face-to-face, but mm. we, weirdly enough, on um, – uh, talk of the nation. We ended up doing a regular thing where, oh, you know, really? I was like that. Yeah, where he, where he was the senior eminence and I was but <laughs> the junior pup doctor, uh-huh. and we would and we would talk about a topic of the day. Um, you know, every few months it was it was now and again, uh-huh. uh, but it became this dialogue that carried on, and uh, and and uh, I just was such a huge admirer and and um, uh, and someone who you know, was navigating his own difficult paths. He had written about his yeah. deep depression and the conflicts he'd had in his life and um and uh and so, you know, he he had a he had a tough life and uh things he's had to struggle through. And uh and so that was that was a well, I love very thinking about that cross generational conversation
1: between the two of you. I, I interviewed him years and years and years ago. Mm. And um and actually went to college with his daughter. And uh and then we we, we had this beautiful correspondence. It's not like it was all the time but I uh, yeah also just held him in great regard and with great fondness and um, the conversation I had with him was about some of the things he started thinking about you know later uh, we actually called the show the biology of the spirit yeah. and you know he was thinking a lot about our brains and about what spirit is and what did he say that that the human spirit is an accomplishment of the human brain like just with this awe of because you know he. Yeah. He went on after he talked about how we died, he, he, you know, about how all, the, the miracle of like how much works all the time. <laughs> how we live, mm-hmm. right? He wrote that follow-up book. Yeah, that follow-up, the
0: follow-up book. Up book, yeah. Which, of course, <laughs> for, for, you know, less people were interested in how we live. <laughs> yeah, less
1: people were interested. And it was just full of wonder. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I just kind of offer, I'm just thinking of that because I, I want to ask you about this. And offer that as a way into this idea of spirit, like you know, whatever that is, if it is a, if it is a, an accomplishment of our biology, but, but I, I, one of the things that I ended up talking with these medical students about was, I, I really do think, and I want to know what you, I want your response because I'm that you know, 50 years from now, um, people will look back at the way we used to use this phrase, mind, body, spirit, and think kind of how primitive that was, because so much of what we're learning is about. The distinction between these things, again, like however you want to define spirit, we know what we're talking about, that, but that what we call emotion and spirit are as physical as they are mental and that the brain lays physical pathways and takes bodily direction and that trauma and joy are in our bodies as much as they're emotional. Um, I just wonder if you think about that, because it seems to me that even though I don't, I don't know that I see you using that language very often, that this runs through your reflection the, the wholeness of us the kind of mysterious fullness of us
0: yeah um there, there's there's many ways i which I, I, I find the word spirit um so difficult to understand i, and they, I use it all the time it's a I, I it's wanna... a
1: squishy word it is it's yeah. a vague word
0: I, I, I use it when I for example one of the ways I use it is just simply to ask people you know after we're done talking about you know how, how are you doing and people then tell me about their aches and their you know their pains and what their um, temperature's been doing and so on and then I'll say you know how are your spirits mm. or how how yeah. is your spirit um, and that's one level but then there's this interconnected level the sense of spirit at a kind of um, starts to become spiritual right the ways in which there's some sense of something transcendent, at least connect uh, across all of people, if not beyond that. And I I grapple with it a little bit towards the end of the book. Yes, um, you do. When I take my dad's ashes to the Ganges. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah, My father, um, so, you know, it's a, again, I'm the apostate Hindu, (laughs) you know, the (laughs) the ultra scientist and, you know, what's the data? And, um, but, you know, for him and my mother, it was, uh, that you bring your ashes to the Ganges in order to allow yourself to be released from the cycle of birth and rebirth and enter the state of nirvana, um, where it's kind of like a heaven is the way I think about it. But um, there was, for me, a sense of the spiritual connected to going there on the Ganges in one of those little boats and undergoing a ritual that has been going on for hundreds, really more than hundreds of years, more than a millennia at least, probably a couple thousand years. Mm. And people coming and bringing the ashes of family members and chanting these same chants and being connected to this whole chain of generations where there are things that, um, you know, my father completed that came from, the generations before him, there are things that he was passing on to me and my sister, that that we are responsible for carrying on, and that there is something much larger than us, that yeah. um, that that uh, that matters, uh, that you know. I end up calling it loyalty mm. in the book mm-hmm. I wrote about. Um, uh, uh, Oh, my gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Royce, uh, the, a philosopher who was at Harvard in in the late 19th century and, into the, uh, and and wrote a book at the very beginning of the 20th century called The Philosophy of Loyalty. And, and what it meant was that that we all have a... He was arguing we all have a deep need to live for something larger than ourselves. And he went through a series of kind of thought experiments to demonstrate it. And one of them that really stuck with me was, you know, asking if after you die you were told that the world were to uh, be blown up, that that if I told you half an hour after you die, the world would blow up with everybody you know in it, would that matter to you? Mm-hmm. And for vast majority of people, it would matter. Yeah. And the reason why it, it matters to people is that it feels like it takes away, that the, 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 the meaning of your life would be gone. That um, That we... That our lives, that there's something more than our survival. That's more evidence that it's not, that we're not all, you know, at core, totally self-interested creatures. That we are, that we have things we live for are larger. Now, that's not the only piece of evidence, there's lots of others that he goes through and then others you can think about along the way. But that for me is that part of that idea, it's the closest thing I come to, to being able to recognize that idea of spirituality um, uh, and connection and meaning that rises above your own life.
1: Yeah, that, that's interesting to think about that um, That there's this intuitive, whether it has any kind of religious or spiritual formation, this formulation, this sense that, that how we are and that we live like has some resonance beyond us beyond our lifetime. I mean, here's some very beautiful language in your book you wrote. There was... I don't know if this is in the book. Anyway, you said this or wrote this Um, (laughs) somewhere. That we are a link in a chain and making a contribution that goes well beyond our own life and what makes being... And that's what makes... That's part of what makes dying tolerable. That's what makes being a mortal creature tolerable.
0: Yes. The... um... A weird thought came to mind. <laughs> so I just, I finished recently this three book series by a Chinese science fiction writer named um, Lu Sixin, C-I-X-I-N. Um, It begins with a book called The Three-Body Problem.
1: I tried to read those books, and I couldn't get into them. Did Did you you love them? You know
0: what I'm talking about. Oh, my God. I totally (laughs) fell into it. (laughs) I I love the title,
1: The Three-Body Problem. I was really drawn to that.
0: (laughs) Right. The characters are unbelievably thick, cardboard. Like, you know, they they have no depth whatsoever. But part of what was – it has this extraordinary scale of time, partly because – you know, yes, the three-body problem is this other planetary system which has three suns, and the and the and the sun and the planet revolves around, is captured by the gravity of each of those suns, and so every day you're never sure when the sun is going to come up, what the temperature is going to be, whether the whether it's going to be you know 300 degrees or or minus 300 <laughs> degrees, um, and how long the day will last, all those things, and will it be a habitable climate or not, and the creatures right. will will. Will dehydrate, you know, when it becomes uh, uh, terrible, and then when water appears again, they rehydrate and then continue civilization. Oh. But the 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 span of this book, because it's all about the idea that a message passes from this three-body planetary system to um, to uh, Earth, and what the consequences of that are. But you know, even our Earthling lives in that book. It, it, they unfold over th- thousands of years and he describes what happens over those thousands of years. And it and it pushes the questions because what he's imagining is the extinction of human beings, but the continuance of other forms of life and how wide our imaginations go mm-hmm. towards bringing those in and making them feel that they are part of our chain of being. Can you have a chain of being that feels connected to people, uh, not even people, these these sentient creatures that can communicate with you who are in the fourth dimension or <laughs> look nothing <laughs> like us. Yeah. And, and, you know, can we have a chain of being that goes on 15 billion years that go beyond, you know, Earth is extinguished and humanity is extinguished, but, but we still feel there's spirit in some yeah. way. I don't know. It made mm-hmm. me think mm-hmm. of that. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I kind of believe in that. I, 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 found it a, I found it really beautiful that it managed to expand my mind Hmm. to make me feel that li- I'm part of life and that even after human beings are gone, that there is meaning in our little contributions.
1: I, I recently had a conversation with Juno Diaz. Also, he loves science fiction. I mean, and about how science fiction is, can be so valuable. I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, people who don't read it don't take it seriously, but, but there's a lot going on. That just, I mean, that's a great example.
0: There can be, there can mm-hmm. be a lot going on. A lot of times, it's not, and it's just really fun. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not Juno Diaz's level sci-fi <laughs> aficionado, but he's at a serious level. I'm I'm, I'm but a but a tourist.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you are called. I don't know if you refer to yourself this way, a public health journalist, in addition to being a physician, obviously. Um, I. I, I'm starting to think of you. I, I, I like this language of you know citizen scientist. Um, I feel like, I kind of feel like citizen physician would be a good good thing to call you. <laughs> like, do, 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 do you like that?
0: I'm, I'm kind of hungering for when I earn the place of Oliver Sacks. You don't have to call him Doctor Oliver Sacks. Mm-hmm. Like you would never call Oliver Sacks Doctor Oliver Sacks. now, no. right? Yeah. And and that he's a writer and a physician. But he's not a writer physician or a physician writer. He's he's a writer and a physician, yeah. and um, and so they are connected. It's my source of ideas and exposure and a lens into the world. And I have this other part of me that's kind of a public health experimenter and and and, and um, do do experiments with whole countries around what we can do to change outcomes in care but um but i don't I haven't figured out the word for what, mm-hmm. what what that thing is yeah to me public um,
1: health journalist doesn't do it. it just feels kind of clinical <laughs> sorry to use yeah. um, a medical term um, i mean i feel one thing i'm thinking about a lot is how we've so collapsed our imagination about the language of public life in recent generation and we've collapsed it into political life and and political life is so dysfunctional so it's that's despairing right if we now just completely identify public life with political life but of course public life is so much bigger than political life and to me you know you are opening up medicine and healthcare um and these webs of relationship that we have with caregivers and doctors and nurses and even our families in in the context of our health as also public life and it is i mean i don't know i'm just
0: Yes. Well I, the word that I really like to used was citizen and what I'm partly trying to do is open that open the portal both ways that um, that the world of what happens to you in the course of our average currently 80 plus year existence um, is one where um, the people that are part of that relationship on the clinical side are also people themselves who are journeying through that pathway. Right. And, and, and the lens that I want to put on this is that I'm here in, you know, how am I the citizen? Um, how am I just a human being, a citizen, uh, who is, um, following my duty as a citizen and not just as a clinician to people, um, and uh and i'm fumbling for this a little bit but the 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 sense that the portal i that i hope i open is that i'm speaking not only as a physician to the outside world mm-hmm. <laughs> but i'm also opening the outside world to us as physicians to yeah. th- and nurses and others to think of ourselves as just citizens and to break down that inside outside and to make it all kind of seamless and um and I don't know, it's a sensibility more than anything I'm trying to yeah. make happen. Yeah. Um, that, that it's I don't, a
1: porousness, though, too, and it's a conversation yeah. that, that you're kind of curating, making possible.
0: Yeah, and uh, the, conversa- the sense of, um, I like getting down into the microscopic of the real stories of what happens when... Um, human beings care for one another and entered into these kinds of relationships and, and you see everything that flows through there, money and jealousy and politics and and um, and misunderstanding and conversation and setting, you know, et cetera. And then you can lift out of it and say, okay, but what are really our goals? And then furthermore, you know, we're this interplay of knowledge and technology and trying to make, trying to function in a world where none of us have a full handle on it all, and we're yeah. inside a system, and, um, and 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 we have to we have to have some agency in that system. And how do we um, how do we not be powerless? And how do we shape that thing we're part of? And um, and so, I, I'm interested in not only the sense of inside and outside. I'm also interested in the sense of the microscopic to the telescopic, and mm. and um, and starting to arrive at a way that um, you're. That we we feel connected, and we know the meaning and the feelings as well as the data about what's happening.
1: Yes, and I mean, as you write about, this is this is a sphere of some of the most cathartic, um, existential, um, and potentially meaningful moments of being human, of our whole lives. Take place in the context of healthcare that's,
0: that's why huge. I feel like I, that's why I feel like I have the unfair advantage of the my fellow writers at The New Yorkers like uh, I live inside this material that is um, extraordinary every day, yeah, and I get to think about all these really confusing, interesting sometimes distressing things like um do we have a right to this stuff <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> called healthcare? What you know? Why are the costs so high? Or why do we itch?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And what the heck is going on there? And um, and
1: how does investigating itching lead us to the question of consciousness itself? <laughs> <laughs>
0: right, right.
1: That's what you and, do.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, the uh, um, and that's what I love. I love the sense that walking in the door. Every day, and in the work I engage with, whether it's a public health work or my surgery work, um, I'm I'm exposed to all of these stories that engage these really meaningful parts of our life, and um, and you know I don't have to have the struggle that Adam Gopnik, one of my favorite writers at The New yeah. Yorker, who you know. Has uh, has to wake up to every day, which is what am I going to write about now?
1: <laughs> you have a wealth of material <laughs> ready made. I've got all the stuff, right?
0: I'm, I, I mine's like, what it, do I pick? Like yeah. my list is too long. Where do I? What you know? What's yeah. the next thing? I,
1: I, I, I want to say too, I, I, I had this realization, which seems so obvious now, but I never thought about it this way before. Getting ready to interview, thinking about this question of mortality and and how we struggle with it. And, you know, often when there's a conversation about the medical profession, and how it has often seemed very callous, right? And especially if we look back at the way people used to talk to people about the fact that you're dying, or, you know, how that was treated. um, It's about the callousness and kind of hubris of of that. But not considering that for the same reasons that any person who's a patient being told that they're dying, that m- that most of us, for whatever reason, are surprised. Doctors are people too, right? So so this, right. this desire to fix it and cure it was a manifestation of just the other side of the same coin.
0: Yeah, and I, I think also um, I'm really interested in the variation as well, that there is this cruelty that can go on and this... Kind of inhumanity, and I've seen it. I see it still, um, uh, where people become treated as objects. They become treated as their disease. You don't see the person. Um, uh, you disconnect. You you know, and especially nowadays, you can remote control manage your patient from hmm. you know your your computer uh, rather than go in and see them and connect with them.
1: Like the medical um, and- um, corollary to drones. Yeah, mm-hmm. completely,
0: and 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 you know, well, I have too many people to see, and you know, w- really well-meaning people. Me, I can do this, right? Um, and uh, and and this, but this general sense that um, that there is there is nonetheless wide variation over time. There there are moments where we we become re-engaged, and uh, and then there's also. People who have managed to avoid that entirely, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and 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 find ways in, and then the variation shows you who the positive deviants are, and those are the people I really want to learn about. Like mm. seeing all of the variation, how people cope with all the technology and everything else we're bringing to bear, and then and then you know where we, um, you know, sit there surfing Facebook rather than going in to talk to my patient. Um, what What are other people doing that are getting themselves out of it, and then how do we how do we scale that how do we hmm. how do we get that to become viral? How do we make that more of what we do? It allows us to start taking control of what feels like it's impossible. I don't have influence over this. you know clinicians are callous or, or are not uh, being humane enough but but there's always some who are doing better and then
1: And always have been, always were.
0: Yeah, and and I think the part of my attitude about it is that um, they aren't necessarily special people. There's nothing, like, magical about them. Mm -hmm. It's often that they simply have a different viewpoint, a way of looking at it, or a different system around them, or a different environment that they've created or someone else has created. And if you can unlock that, you can bring that. Elsewhere, and, it, and that's the optimism that I feel and see in that energizes me.
1: Yeah. Um, this is my last question. Um, uh, the question of what it means to be human, um, and a, a, a big ancient question. You know, it it actually runs. You know, it's not just being mortal, but being human that runs all the way through your work. Um, I mean, here is this. Some beautiful language from the epilogue of being mortal. Being mortal is about the struggle to cope with the constraints of our biology, with the limits set by genes and cells and flesh and bone. The fact that we are limited is is something that you you come back to. I mean, I think you say to be human is to be limited. That has informed um, the way you have grappled with the, with the definition and practice of medicine. I'm I'm curious about. You know how this this uh, fact, this reality that to be human is to be limited, which is also so hard for us to take in, how that spills over into other aspects of the way you move through the world. You move through the world as a as a human being.
0: Um, the first way that I think about it is um, number one. Well, two things jump to mind. Number one, and my Public health work—it's about the idea that we're all so incredibly limited, and yet there are ways that we string together and are and are extraordinary, al- almost unlimited as groups of people. Mm. And that mm-hmm. when and and it's the kind of magic of when that happens when you all start pulling together and then you eradicate polio from the world, which we're almost on the verge of doing. Right? That's just just it's just freaking amazing. Like when you see that happen and how these limited, flawed. And and to me that was the amazement of surgery. Like we're these these you know smart great people, but you know we're all limited, huh. <laughs> and yet can pull off these um, incredible risky complicated operations and and uh, and forms of care that um, give people back their lives. And and give them many years of of better life, so that's one. That's the first one that I went to, and then the second direction was I mean, quite the opposite, which is that um, as I walk th- through the world, I'm constantly combating the fact that I feel you know um, the, uh, the 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 um, sense of. Coping with that limitation and being constantly aware of those limitations. Um, one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons, which in many ways encapsulates me, is um, the uh, a, a gravestone that reads, "He kept his options open."
1: <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. And
0: my way of navigating through limitation is trying as much as possible to um, uh, keep my options open. Like
1: mm-hmm.
0: try to try to navigate with. As minimal risk as possible, which means you don't accomplish anything. So I'm 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 always fighting that sense of um, needing to take the leap, despite the reality of imperfection, of mistakes, and uh, and and push forward, make your bets. Um, You know, I don't need. I have to make my bet without 100 percent of the information and certainty, um, and. That's in many ways to go full circle. The attraction to me about going into a field like surgery was very similar to the ones that drew me into the world of politics, which is that the best people I saw in surgery um, were like the best uh, leaders and politicians I saw mm. who recognized that we're limited, that, um, that you don't have all the knowledge, you, you, you know that, that your, your abilities are imperfect, the information is incomplete, and yet – um, there are times when uh, acting is the better choice than not to act. Mm. And then you live with the consequences and learn from them, take ownership and responsibility and move on. Um, and that sense of enacting that in our lives is um, uh, feels really important for me to aspire to.
1: Well, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you, and it was a pleasure to really steepen your work.
0: Thank you. Thank you for um, driving the conversation. <laughs> deep, I deeply. did. Thank
1: you. You you allowed me to take charge, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we'll let you know uh, when this is going to air. And, uh, yeah, again, I'm just so grateful that you made time and— I uh, love your work. Thank you.
0: No, and and uh, and really appreciate what you're doing and you. moving the conversation around and somehow somehow capturing a ton of people doing that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, I hope maybe our paths will cross in person one of these days. Yes, I hope it does. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye.